Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based here in New York City. I'm really thrilled to have two special guests with me here today to discuss the healthcare landscape for private equity. First, I'd like to introduce Mike Grady. He's a principal at CIP Capital. Welcome to the show, Mike. Next, we're delighted to have Dom Nicolia, who's a VP with Regal Healthcare Capital Partners here in New York. Dom, thanks for joining us. So let's uh, let's jump in, Mike. I'll, I'll kick things off with you first. CIP uh, obviously is a very important relationship to BDO. We are certainly uh, sure. value that. So thank you. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your firm and uh, areas of focus for some of your investments. Sure thing. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Todd. So sure. CIP, we're a mid market private equity firm uh, focused on really growth oriented businesses. We're a sector-focused fund. Uh, Common theme for us is uh, outsourced services. Typically, these services are tech-enabled. Our investments are across core sectors. Uh, So we do a lot in human capital management, uh, marketing, knowledge, or education services, and historically and increasingly focused on uh, on healthcare services. And so within healthcare, healthcare, it's really tech-enabled business models that are solving challenges, containing costs, uh, driving efficiencies into the healthcare system among all the core constituents, so providers, payers, employers, and, and patients. Uh, we typically invest in, in companies that have between, you know, call it 30 and $150 million of revenue. And where we are trying to differentiate is through driving, you know, accelerated meaningful growth and also transformations of these companies while we're investors, largely through a combination of organic growth investments, so sales and marketing products, technology, in addition to a pretty accelerated buy and build kind of M&A strategy. And so, and lastly, we're uh, we're based here in New York and currently investing out of our third fund. Yeah, well, I know you guys have been super active, so uh, the yep. the listeners will enjoy your your perspectives. Uh, turning to you, Dom. Uh, certainly, Regal Healthcare Capital. We've started to work uh, with your firm a lot over the last year, and I know you just raised your 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 second fund. So, congrats sure. on that. Maybe you Thank can you. talk about the the focus of the firm and your role there. Sure. Yeah. So, so Regal is a private equity fund focused exclusively on healthcare services specifically on multi-site healthcare businesses with a spin towards consumer-facing retail. Uh, one of our founders, Dr. David Kim, is a serial entrepreneur, healthcare operator, and also an emergency room physician. And our other founder, John Santama, is a former healthcare investment banker who is one of the leading multi-site bankers prior to starting Regal. Uh, so Regal has six portfolio companies across the healthcare services space, and spanning from dental, dermatology, fertility, autism, hospital outsourcing, and revenue cycle management. And as you mentioned, we, we just raised our second fund at around $165 million. And we're now spending a lot of time looking to partner with leading healthcare entrepreneurs who have 2 to $6 million of EBITDA and who can benefit from our collective operational and financial expertise as they move the scale. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I had the pleasure of playing around the golf with Dr. Kim this past summer. He's a much better golfer than me. So pass that on to him. Uh, I, let, let's, let's move on as I'd like kind of to, to hear both of your thoughts on the state of the healthcare industry for PE uh, and some opportunities really in the space. So, Dom, I'll throw the question to you and then get, get Mike's input um, if you want to share your insights, too. So can you share some of the interesting trends you're seeing uh, in PE healthcare investments and maybe touch on 
what types of deals you've done recently in the sector. Sure. So uh, one overarching theme that we're seeing is sort of the buzzword, right? Uh, the consumerization of healthcare, right? That's sort of the center stone of our fund, right? Uh, as the healthcare industry has grown to almost 20% of GDP, as you know, the cost per person is skyrocketing and a disproportionate share of that's being pushed onto the patient. Right, so as patients are becoming more aware and more accountable for the payments from their own care, they're, they're starting to think of themselves more as a customer rather than a patient. And you know, at the end of the day, all they want is affordable, high-quality, convenient care in a pleasant setting. So gone are the days of the three-month wait list only to meet with a disinterested doctor. Right. Right? Uh, so uh, you know, to really be successful in today's environment, healthcare businesses need to embrace this new reality, and they need to optimize their business model. Yep. So, so at Regal, we spend a lot of our time searching for these businesses, you know, businesses that are leaning into this trend and who are looking to create value for the patient and who are looking to grow in the right way. So every investment that we've made and will make uh, at Regal, I've been into businesses who live and breathe these values and spend every day providing accessible care with a great patient experience while still holding clinical quality above all else. Yeah. Sounds like a uh, recipe for success. Mike, care to share your thoughts? Sure. I mean, so the, the rising consumerism in healthcare is, is also a trend that, um, you know, we're really focused on right now and have recently kind of invested around. And again, as costs continue to rise, and, and as Dom said, these these costs being shifted more to patients given how these plans are structured. I mean, the numbers are staggering. So, you know, premiums uh, and deductibles are growing anywhere from call it three to five times faster than wages. Um, and, and really kind of for us, the compelling business model within all, within all of this is what we call kind of consumer-directed healthcare uh, or consumer-directed benefits accounts. So think about your flex spending accounts, your health reimbursement accounts, your health savings accounts. They're all growing fast given that they provide consumers the ability to set aside pre-tax dollars to fund and alleviate the burden of growing healthcare expenses. Uh, so we actually recently invested in a business called Benefit Resource which is a benefits administration provider of these accounts. And we're excited about it because, one, it really drives the value to these employees in addressing rising healthcare costs. And two, it's driving a lot of value to employers um, through outsourcing the administration of these accounts uh, for them through a tech-enabled service. The employers do not want to provide this service themselves. And it's also a kind of highly fragmented space, which plays to our uh, M&A strategy, buy and build strategy as a firm. So very excited about it um, as a new um, investment area where we're, we're spending time. Awesome. So, so I, I, I guess I have a, a quirky question for you guys. I'm wondering, to, to what extent do you think PE is seeing healthcare as a safe bet, considering the the current economic dynamics? Um, perhaps, Mike, I'll, I'll throw this one to you uh, first, and then let uh, Dom chime in. Yep. Yeah. Great. Great question. I mean, I've, I've looked at the numbers. You look over the last five years. I think healthcare-related deal flow and private equity has, has basically doubled. Uh, we've been part of this theme as as we view it as a growing sustainable place to allocate capital. Uh, the themes in the industry support a variety of different types of investments and business models. And to give you a couple examples, you know, the population uh, continues to age and, you know, seven to eight years, we're going to have substantially more seniors um, in the population, which drives, you know, massive growth and in, in more care and services for these folks. Um, we actually invested in a marketing services business um, around the senior living facility uh, end market. Uh, the growth in spending and aging effect is also driving massive employment in healthcare. I think I just saw it now outpaces manufacturing and, and retail in terms of, um, of job creation. We have a human capital management investment around, around that theme as well. Um, you know, lastly, just the system just continues to be to have challenges and, and inefficiencies for all constituents, providers, payers, employers, 
really resulting in various different uh, business models, both financial back office as well as clinical, that can drive uh, meaning, meaningful value through outsourced services and, and solving critical needs through really technology and other, other means. Dom, how about, uh, I'll, I'll throw the same question to you and add, you know, feel free to add any perspectives uh, that you uh, see kind of regarding where the trends are headed and perhaps deal activity versus uh, last year. Sure, sure. Yeah, so first, I agree with everything Mike said. Healthcare is definitely 100% seen as a defensive investment, right? Uh, the healthcare industry is a behemoth, and it's going to be pretty hard to fundamentally change it, at least in our lifetimes. <laughs> And I think that makes people really comfortable when investing into the space and deploying their capital. Uh, unfortunately, people are always going to get sick, and they're probably getting sicker. Uh, and they're always going to be looking for a way to fix it, regardless of the economic or political environment at that time. So given that, we're, we're seeing a lot of activity in the space, even compared to the market we're coming out of. And we expect that trend to accelerate going forward as people look to get their piece of the pie. Um, but with that said, I, I will caution that healthcare space isn't that different from any other industry in that little changes can sometimes cause an enormous ripples for those who aren't well prepared. Right? One thing we're always cognizant of when, when looking at investments is the reimbursement outlook. Right? Right? Uh, so we operate under the assumption that when the economy ultimately turns for the worse, the government's going to use that as a catalyst to make some major changes in reimbursement. And certain be- businesses that depend on the government as a payer are really going to struggle. So because of that, we at Regal, we, we try to avoid that heavy government exposure. Yep, makes sense. All right, guys, well, I appreciate your insights on, on, the, uh, on the topic. We're going to ship gears uh, briefly for our coffee break with Patty Seymour, who is a MD in our industry specialty services practice. Patty's based in Boston and has over 25 years of experience in the biotech industry. Patty will be talking with Lisa Koza, also an MD with our industry specialty services practice in Boston. Lisa has more than 30 years of scientific operations and business development experience in the biopharmaceutical industry. Let's hear from them. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Koza, a managing director in BDO's biotechnology consulting group. Thanks for having me today. I'm joined by my colleague, Patty Seymour. Patty has more than 25 years of experience in the biotech industry across multiple supply chain disciplines. I'm excited to speak with her today about trends in gene therapy and what that could signal for investors in both life sciences and healthcare. So thanks, Lisa. I'm glad to be here today. Right now, the gene therapy market is really exploding. In fact, we're seeing over a thousand assets in development right now. And the global gene therapy market is forecasted to reach almost $6 billion by 2026. So what are some of the challenges you see gene therapy developers facing that they'll need to overcome to deliver on the promise of such treatment? Yeah. So that's a great question, Lisa. Um, our focus within the biotechnology group here in BDO is to look at the, the manufacturing issues. So in addition to seeking out the right technologies for the gene therapy product, we also need to figure out how to do the manufacturing. And part of the challenge is is the the manufacturing facilities uh, right now are are not in existence or not enough of them in place to actually meet this growing demand, as you said, over a thousand assets and the the growing development investment that we're, we're going to see over the next five or six years. On that note, What challenges are CMOs facing in that respect, and what risks do they pose for the broader industry and success of these gene therapies? 
Yeah, so I think that's uh, one of the real opportunities, uh, both for the developers and the investors in this area, isn't it? So there's a lot of manufacturing demand right now, as I mentioned. And so if you're looking to expand your capabilities in that space or even enter it, you have a higher chance of success. So if you're a current contract manufacturer, the risk of adding capacity to meet the demand for these new um, gene therapy molecules is actually lower because there's such a, a pent-up demand that your capacity will be likely to have high utilization very quickly. Uh, if you're an investor in this space as well, if you're going to help fund the construction and the, and the running of these types of facilities, again, the return on investment is likely to be quite high because, again, the utilization of these facilities will be high and there'll be a deep pipeline of products uh, waiting to get access to this capacity. Wow, it's interesting. What are the biggest regulatory hurdles gene therapy developers are facing now? So in the regulatory and the commercialization area, uh, the, one of the issues, the number of um, patients in these trials tend to be quite small uh, to begin with. So getting enough um, uh, of a patient population to actually understand how these therapies work uh, can be one of the regulatory challenges. However, you know, once they have that number and, and they do achieve regulatory approval, um, the next step is actually uh, reimbursement. So just because your product has been regulatory approved does not mean it'll be a commercial success. So I think one of the areas that we follow, and I think it's going to be really fascinating um, in the foreseeable future, is how not just in the U.S., but in the, the broader global sphere is how our health uh, care systems will move towards outcome-based reimbursement, and the payers will consider such arrangements for gene therapies. So, for example, if the gene therapy company is, is going to charge hundreds, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars for a therapy, um, the, the actual payout will be based on outcome. And so that's something that we're, we're following closely in terms of the success of these products and how much demand in terms of uh, manufacturing will be needed. Sounds like there are quite a few complexities in the industry right now, and it's going to be very exciting to watch. But for now, I think we're out of time. Thanks for sharing your insights, Patty. Now back to Todd Kinney at BDO in New York. Very enlightening. Appreciate your insights, Patty and Lisa. Now let's get back to our conversation with my guests, Dom Nicolia with Regal Healthcare Capital and Mike Grady from CIP Capital. All right, guys, moving on to our next topic, I'd like to focus on factors that might be triggering an uptick in deal activity and growth in healthcare. Uh, certainly, 2018 was a notable year for transaction activity, and I, I think I last saw that it's estimated the amount of dry powder uh, available is about $1.8 trillion. I am getting to a question here. So when it comes to healthcare, organi- organizations may ask themselves, should we buy it or build it? Uh, Dom, I'll go to you first, then Mike. What are your thoughts regarding uh, buy versus build in the healthcare sector? Sure. So we're at Regal. We spend all of our time in the multi-site healthcare space, and buy versus build is really, in a lot of ways, the million-dollar question. Uh, everyone in healthcare is working towards the same goal. Get as big as you can and as diverse as you can as quickly as you can. Right? There's obviously a few reasons to do this. Cost efficiencies, better rates with the payers, and hopefully a better experience for your patient. But the question is, how do you do it? Right? Uh, some people feel really strongly that you can only buy. Some people feel really strongly that you can only build. Uh, at Regal, we kind of view it as you know, a bit of a situational thing. Right. All right. Um, our preference is, of course, always to build it ourselves if we can. All right. By building it, uh, we're better able to control the quality of care and the experience of the patient. Uh, 
and also the ROI is often much better. Right. right. But with that said, uh, building it, it's a risky proposition, right? It might not work. And if it does work, it, it might take a really long time. So sometimes it, it's better to just you know buy a proven commodity that can add to your business right away or buy some capability that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to build, um, right? As you can imagine, this market, we're seeing companies more and more just go towards the buy it side, right? As they're trying to build a lot of EBITDA really quickly to take advantage of the premium multiples that they'll get. Uh, I think in our view, that's a perfectly reasonable strategy and there's a time and a place for it, but you just have to be careful if you go that route because a lot of groups just end up buying everything in sight and they become aggregators rather than value creators. And that's just not a sustainable model. Right, right. Mike, uh, care to add anything to Dom's comments? Sure thing. No, I think um, I think for us, listen, we we deploy a pretty accelerated M and A strategy in in all of our investments uh, at CIP, and we don't um, we, we view healthcare as compelling and and and, and really no different um, as it relates to add-ons for for a couple of reasons. I think first, um, a lot of the areas in healthcare services and technology where we're spending time. You know, tend to be fragmented. Um, RCM uh, benefit administration, to name a few, and so in some of these end markets, you're seeing a combination of smaller businesses um, that are founder-owned that could be uh, tuck-ins, um, and you also tend to have other sort of PE back providers that could be logical combination targets or larger acquisition targets. Um, and also, I'd say the other thing we're seeing is the industry has a lot of traditional business models that are shifting to more software and technology-driven uh, business models. And so we often see opportunities to invest in a strong platform out of the gates, may have a little bit less tech in it currently, and really extend those um, software capabilities, extend the kind of techify that that business um, through M&A and, and building something that's going to be really attractive down the road for strategic buyers. And so kind of our view across the portfolio and, and also in healthcare is that um, we do prefer to kind of buy uh, versus build where we can if we see opportunities. And we, we tend to kind of invest in sectors where that uh, where it lends itself to that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, listen, let's uh, I guess we'll pivot here to our last topic. Uh, when we're talking healthcare, you got to talk regulations. So, Mike, I'm going to throw this one to you and then we'll go to Dom to close it out. Has your firm been monitoring any pending regs or proposed legislation uh, that you think could unravel or, or boost particular types of deals? Sure thing. So, I mean, I'm kind of kind of chuckling because we watched the debate last night. We could talk about this for, for hours. But I think that the headline regulatory dynamic that um, a lot of people are monitoring right now is healthcare reform. Uh, despite what you read, you know, our view is that even in a very kind of democratic administration, the most likely thing we see occurring would be more of expansions of the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, with things like a public option for, for health care as opposed to or, or subsidies, right, uh, as opposed to more structural change uh, is something we'll continue to pay attention to. So that's kind of the, the first we're, um, we're kind of just monitoring. And secondly, I think the theme that's accelerating through reform is, is kind of another buzzword is kind of the shift from you know, fee-for-service or a volume model to a model that revolves more around what we would say, you know, maximizing value delivered through alignment of incentives and management of risk, really a value-based care model, right? And so there's already been legislation passed that offers incentives to um, healthcare professionals that participate in some of these more um, risk-bearing care models. And so with this, it really drives opportunities across, um, you know, various types of businesses uh, and business models for providers, you know, payers, all the constituents around around the healthcare end market. Um, you know, we're seeing things like, you know, patient surveillance offerings, revenue integrity models, kind of more sophisticated RCM models and other kind of various services and tools to contain costs, um, you know, really in an environment that has uh, more payment risk. Yeah. Dom, 
Anything to add on the uh, on the regs topic? Well, no, that's that, that very thorough. <laughs> Pretty uh, good I, answer, yeah, yeah. I agree right. with it all. Um, yeah. uh, another thing we've been paying attention to is uh, lately is potential changes to the out-of-network billing and the related surprise billing of patients. Right, As you can imagine, investing in uh, the physician practice space, there's there can potentially be a lot of out-of-network exposure. Right, uh, Historically, it was a legitimate growth tactic in healthcare to try to have a portion of your revenue come from out-of-network billing, right? Because you can get substantially higher reimbursements than you would in-network with the exact same payer. Uh, you see this a lot specifically in higher paid specialties and uh, hospital outsourcing, hospital services. Uh, so recently, though, we've seen a lot of chatter about this topic and about how it needs to go away. And it really seems to be heating up with a number of proposed solutions floating around. Um, you know, as with most changes to the healthcare system, this probably isn't going to happen overnight. Uh, but generally, in our view, when regulators are locked onto an issue, it's also probably not going to go away. Right. right? So uh, given this, we're, we're spending a lot of time on reimbursement trends across the industry, and specifically prior to making any investment, we spend a lot of time, work with a lot of uh, external parties to help get a good sense of what's going on there. Um, and, you know, as the industry, to, to Mike's point, as we move towards value-based care, uh, we're only going to be investing in companies and businesses that are on the right side of the cost curve, uh, who are taking cost out of the system. And, you know, we just don't think there's any other way to do it. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know when or if these changes are going to happen to add a network, uh, but we surely don't want to be the ones holding the bag when it does. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, it's great. It's really great to get your take on the market and where you think uh, it's headed, guys. So, Dom Regal Healthcare Capital, Mike CIP Capital, we really appreciate your time on the uh, podcast today. I know our listeners will enjoy hearing your insights. There were definitely a few gems you guys dropped there. Uh, and we, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of BDO, we really appreciate the uh, business relationships with uh, with both your firms. So it's great to uh, team up on this podcast. Yep. Thanks, thanks very much. much. Yeah. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.